Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 23 and we're dealing with flying boat accidents. You may be surprised to hear, but one accident in particular involving an Imperial Airways flying boat in 1939 set in motion the use of specialized carb heaters for all aircraft. The safety inspector also recommended that all passengers should be instructed in the fastening of life belts and the location of emergency exits, as well as other life-saving equipment like rafts, which became mandatory in aircraft flying over the ocean. So all those trips you've taken where the cabin crew point out the emergency exits and spend time showing you how to use a life jacket and belts can be directly linked to this one accident in 1939. Remember, this series is really about aviation safety more than just a story about a crash. Discovering the cause of an accident usually implies a technical or human error, which must not be repeated, and much of what we've heard so far in the previous 22 episodes seeks to identify those moments. First, a quick word about flying boats and amphibious aircraft. Frenchman Alphonse Pennon filed the first patent for a flying machine with a boat hull and retractable landing gear in 1876, but Austrian Wilhelm Kress is credited with building the first seaplane Drachenflieger in 1898 although its two 30-horsepower Daimler engines were inadequate for takeoff, and it later sank when one of the two floats collapsed. A flying boat is not amphibious, just by the way. It's an aircraft that has to land and take off using water with no fixed landing gear. It's also different from a float plane, which has two or more slender floats mounted under the fuselage for buoyancy. A flying boat uses its fuselage as part of the buoyancy, like a boat, thus flying boat. The earliest were boats that could fly, Later technology made these more sleek and aerodynamic, and they were more like planes that could be boats. They are directly linked to the expansion of the British Empire, and the Brits were big developers of these aircraft. Their dominions were global, so flying from ocean to ocean or port to port made sense. Their advantage back in the interwar period, when most were produced, was the fact that they didn't need a runway. Any ocean or surface of water would do. Flying boats were some of the largest aircraft of the first half of the 20th century, exceeded in size only by bombers developed during the Second World War. They were also commonly used as maritime patrol and air-sea rescue, particularly during times of conflict, and some still are. Flying boats such as the PBY Catalina and the Short Sunderland played key roles in both the Pacific and Atlantic theatres of the Second World War. These days, float planes are more regularly found across the world. During the 60s, their popularity trailed off because countries around the world began to invest heavily in airports, but you'll still find a few types operating globally, such as Shin Meiwa US-1A and the Martin JRM Mars. The Shin Meiwa PS-1 and US-1A are large stall aircraft used for anti-submarine warfare and air-sea rescue, built by Japanese aircraft manufacturer Shin Meiwa. The PS-1 anti-submarine warfare variant is a flying boat which carries its own beaching gear on board, while the search and rescue oriented US-1A is a true amphibian. Between 1976 and 1999, Japan's US-1A fleet was used in over 500 rescues and saved 550 lives. The US-1A, though, was retired in 2017. The Martin JRM Mars was a large four-engine cargo transport flying boat designed and built by the Martin Company for the US Navy during World War II. It was the largest Allied flying boat to enter production, although only seven were built. That's the largest flying boat that entered production. Of course, the Spruce Goose, built by Howard Hughes, remains the largest in history, but it never really got above ground effect flight and was never produced. The United States Navy contracted the development of the XPB-2M1 Mars in 1938 as a long-range ocean patrol flying boat, which later entered production as the JRM Mars long-range transport. 
Four of these surviving aircraft were later converted for civilian use to firefight. Two of the aircraft still remain based at Sprout Lake, just outside Port Alberni, British Columbia, but neither is operational these days. In the 21st century, flying boats maintain a few niche uses, such as dropping water on forest fires, which seem to be increasing in the west of America, and air transport around archipelagos and access to other underdeveloped areas. Many modern seaplane variants, whether float or flying boat types, are convertible amphibious aircraft, where either landing gear or flotation modes are used to land and take off. After a number of accidents, though, by 2019, America's National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, warned that seaplanes and floatplanes may no longer be a safe form of transport. It then requested the FAA to upgrade its rules about seaplanes, which currently fall far short of safety regulations for other commercial aircraft, apparently. This was specifically after two accidents in May 2019 in Alaska. In the first, a pilot of a floatplane flying over Alaska steered to give a better view of a waterfall just as he had done many flights before. This time, he saw a flash on his left and crashed into another plane. Both aircraft plunged into the sea, killing six. The next week, another seaplane crashed in Alaska as well, with two more fatalities, thus the FAA investigation. Landing on water has always been dangerous, even for the most experienced pilots. Sometimes it's just roughness, with swells battering the fuselage. Other times, planes hit submerged logs or other obstacles. And even whales and porpoises, and sometimes dolphins, have been a menace for aircraft landing on water. Flying at night is even more dangerous. In 1937, for example, a short S-23 Empire flying boat Mark II, also operated by Imperial Airways, Registration Gulf Alpha Delta Victor Delta crashed in Lumbo Lagoon at Isla de Mozambique. That's a tiny island off the northern Mozambique coast. It had been late on schedule, having had to overnight at Dar es Salaam or Mombasa. It crashed on its second approach attempt, the flying boat porpoising just short of the landing jetty. The cockpit separated from the fuselage on impact, and 33-year-old Tom Webb, who was the radio officer, and George Knight, the flight clerk, died in the accident. Four others, including the pilots, survived. So let's have a quick look at Imperial Airways, which launched in 1924, but would be shut down by 1939. It was a private monopoly with a public subsidy. That already sounds rather shady. Imperial Airways paid an annual dividend to private shareholders, but was financed out of the taxpayer's pocket. That troubled taxpayers, as you can guess, particularly as it had a propensity for accidents, and not to mention the use of public funds for a private company. Imperial filled a gap, however. It was strategic. At the time, the British Empire required quick transport links to its global dominions, and the flying boat filled an urgent need. Its curious management structure also would not be permitted these days, unless, of course, you live where I do, South Africa. That's where the ruling ANC has constantly sent undercooked executives into the CEO hot seat in grand displays of political largesse, leading to grand displays of bankruptcy for South African Airways. But back to Imperial. The chairman of the board was the former railway executive Sir Eric Geddes. He knew nothing about aviation and was also chairman of the far more important Dunlop Rubber Company. That meant he couldn't really devote any time to the airline, which received a subsidy of one million British pounds. Ah yes, another grand display of political largesse. SAA was not alone. So the taxpayer money meant the airline was supposed to fly 800,000 operational miles per year, rising to 1 million miles after four years. One mile per pound, you could say. It never delivered on this lofty promise. Because this was still the age of rampant colonialism, the airline could only use British aircraft and engines, 
It therefore inherited a motley fleet of seven DH-34s, three Handley Pages, two Supermarine Sea Eagles, and a Vickers Vimy. It has been said that Imperial Airways began in a frigid climate of good intentions not unmingled with hostility, as John Pudney writes. That's also because it began life inauspiciously with a pilot strike. Of the 260 staff, 19 were pilots who were unhappy about both pay and terms of service. Nothing changes, it seems. Commercial pilots are still grumbling about both, but mostly about the latter. So the airline was grounded as it took off to mangle a metaphor. The strike was eventually resolved and the airline continued, but I'm afraid the industrial action and Imperial Airways remained firm friends. Imperial suffered from labor disputes through its 15-year history, largely because the management fixated on profits and were rather careless about the pilots. Again, sounds pretty modern, if you ask me. This was further exacerbated by the excessive obsession owners had with secrecy. In the Mozambique crash I outlined a moment ago, the investigators couldn't determine if the flying boat had overnighted at Dar es Salaam or Mombasa. There were no logs to access. By the mid-30s, Imperial Airways had one of the longest route networks in the world, but only ferried a fraction of Britain's passengers because some aircraft that operated carried only 10 passengers at a time. Imperial's mail-carrying service, though, was more strategic, thus the secrecy. Still, it carried mail and passengers to South Africa starting in 1937, to India, then Australia in 1938. Passenger fares were £435 per person to India, for example, a small fortune in 1938. After introducing the Short Empire C-Class, 28% of the flying boats became total losses due to accidents. Worse, investigations showed that had these planes landed on a hard surface, most would have probably experienced only minor damage. Then there were the terminal delays, which could be extremely long, days at a time, when passengers waited for rough seas to settle down. Maintenance was more complex and expensive than on land because salt water inevitably got into the engines and the structure. They also could not become highly aerodynamic because of their large hulls and stabilizers. When British Airways began in 1935, Imperial Airways days were always numbered. They updated the fleet to a four-engine monoplane, the Armstrong Whitworth AW27 Ensign, with seating for 40 passengers in 1938. Then a whole series of other accidents on its European routes took place, and it was doomed. By 1938, plans were afoot to create a single airline, combining both Imperial Airways and British Airways into a new nationalized enterprise called the British Overseas Airways Corporation, universally known as BOAC. Back to our main accident of this podcast. We're concentrating on the 1939 ditching for a reason. It led to changes in aviation safety with new rules about how passengers should be briefed, as well as the installation of rafts aboard airliners that flew significant distances over the ocean. On the 21st of January 1939, the Imperial Airways Short Empire flying boat Cavalier took off from Port Washington on Long Island, New York, just before 10.40 a.m. bound for Bermuda. At 12.23 p.m., the flying boat sent a message Running into bad weather, may have to earth, which referred to earthing the aerial. That indicated heavy cloud was causing static to build up. The captain decided to try and climb through high cumulus cloud, but that meant he flew straight into extreme icing conditions. As they climbed, engine power dropped. The captain then turned back towards Port Washington, 
hoping to regain a clear patch and thus cruise in more favourable conditions, but found that too much height had been lost, and he turned back again onto his original course. Not a great display of airmanship, but that's easy for me to say, far away in bright African sunshine sitting on a chair connected to Mother Earth in 2021. This was followed by another message at 12.27. Still in bad weather, severe static. Port Washington tried to call the Cavalier for 15 minutes after this, but got no reply. At 12.57, Cavalier suddenly broadcast an SOS message, followed at 12.59 by a radio call that, All engines failing through ice, altitude 1,500 feet, forced landing in a few minutes. Another message eight minutes later said she was still flying, but only on two engines, and four minutes after that came a series of messages to say she'd come down in the sea. The last message at 1.13 was the single word, sinking. As soon as it was realized that Cavalier was going to land at sea, Port Washington requested a Pan American World Airlines Sikorsky S-42 flying boat from Bermuda to go to her assistance. The United States Coast Guard also sent a flying boat from Long Island to Cavalier's last known position, but couldn't find her. The U.S. Army Corps Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress heavy bomber was then released and made a sortie from Langley Field in Virginia to search for the Cavalier, but had to return before midnight without success. Then the U.S. Coast Guard which had dispatched two cutters and two patrol boats to the scene, found that one was only 17 nautical miles away, but the other three had come from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, New York and Norfolk, Virginia, and would take more than a day to get there. The commercial tanker Esso Baytown was the first to arrive at the scene of the accident and reported at 23 hours 25 that she had sighted wreckage and had lowered her lifeboats. The survivors were singing and had been clinging onto wreckage for 10 hours in mid-winter Atlantic water. Sailors aboard the SO Baytown said they heard what they thought was screaming and managed to pick up six passengers and four crew. The United States Navy gunboat USS Erie transferred a doctor to SO Baytown, but because of the high seas and darkness, search for other survivors was then discontinued. Still, it's really incredible that the ten were found alive if you consider the weather and the time of year. The survivors were then ferried to New York. The other three aboard, unfortunately, were lost at sea. The British Air Ministry's Inspector of Accidents reported that it had been caused by icing in the carburetors of all four engines. This caused the full loss of power in the inboard engines and partial loss in the outer. Then the commander of the Cavalier had reported icing problems prior to ditching. So the inspector recommended that extra heating of carburetors and of the incoming air be provided and that, importantly, a temperature indicator be installed. He also advised that passengers should be instructed in the fastening of life belts and the location of emergency exits and recommended the provision of extra life-saving equipment like rafts and pyrotechnic signals and that passengers should fasten safety belts at takeoff and before landing. It's really interesting to note that this forgotten moment in aviation history has a legacy in the 21st century of cabin crews standing in front of passengers who smirk knowingly as the crew member displays with remarkable dexterity how to open and close a seatbelt buckle. But if I were you, I'd take note of the emergency exit briefing, counting the number of seats to the location, as well as the briefing on how to use your life jacket. For three passengers back in 1939, that may have saved their lives. Having a life raft would also have made, obviously, a big difference. Finally, a shocking flying boat accident that actually took place over land. The 1957 Aquila Airways Solent crash, which took place on the Isle of Wight in England on 15th November. 45 lives were lost at the time, and it was then the second worst aircraft accident in the UK. The aircraft, an Aquila Airways short Solent 3 flying boat named the City of Sydney, 
Registered Golf Alpha Kilo November uniform departed Southampton at 2246 on a night flight to Las Palmas and Madeira via Lisbon. At 2254, the crew radioed to report that the number four propeller had been feathered. This is what they said exactly. Number four engine feathered, coming back in a hurry. During an attempt to return, the Solent crashed into a disused chalk pit. The crash site is on the eastern slope of Shalcombe Down, above the small villages of Chessel and Shalcombe. At the time of the impact, the plane was apparently banked 45 degrees to the right, the same side of all engine power loss, according to the accident report. The aircraft caught fire on impact. Three soldiers on a night exercise were close by when the plane slammed into the quarry and were on the scene within minutes, and they managed to drag 13 people from the flaming wreckage, but they suffered burns as they did so. Except for the tail, the aircraft was totally destroyed. Of the 58 on board, 45 were killed, 13 injured. A public inquiry by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch of the Ministry of Transport concluded that the cause remained unknown. The accident was actually caused by the stoppage of the number three engine after number four had failed. Why number three was halted, we never will know. The cause of the subsequent number three engine stoppage was either an electrical failure in the fuel cutoff actuator circuit or an accidental operation of the cutoff switch. Nine months after the crash, 10-year-old Aquila Airways announced it would cease operations. In October 2008, a permanent memorial was dedicated at Brooks St. Mary's Church around a mile south of the crash site. But that, it's time to end. Thanks to Russell for suggesting the topic for my next episode, Ground Proximity Warning Systems. Recently, one of those aboard a Cirrus I was flying saved me from embarrassment, flying into uncontrolled airfield at night when the landing lights failed to respond to the signal from our radio. It was a sudden warning of 500 that I was not expecting as I searched the area for the landing strip, and while not a full-on incident, so to speak, it was definitely an attention grabber and focused my mind on our most important mantra, aviate, navigate, communicate. With that, be well until we meet again. Goodbye.